0: Trigger warning, this podcast contains discussions about suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. And welcome back to another helping of the Just Checking In Podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have an atta and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. <laughs> In this week's episode, I'm checking in with another former BBC journalist and I've interviewed a few current and former ones already in the form of Christian Hugill. Christian is a freelance journalist who currently is working between LBC and TalkSport. Prior to going freelance, Christian worked at BBC Radio 1's Newsbeat where he worked as a reporter and presenter for five years. Before he got his big break at Radio 1, Christian worked freelance for a variety of outlets including BBC Radio Leicester in his hometown, Knots TV and Orion Media. In this episode we discuss how and why Christian got into broadcast journalism, the hard work he had to put in to break into the industry and the mental health difficulty he experienced when he was made redundant from his Newsbeat role and why that role was more than a job for him. When it comes to issues in the industry we discuss class, specifically Christian's working class background and how it's shaped his journalism journey and perception of the world he stepped into the all-consuming nature of the UK news cycle and how he struggled to emotionally detach from stories which impacted him like the cost of living crisis or COVID-19. We unpick how and why the news cycle has changed since the Brexit vote in 2016 and the abuse he's received online from both sides of the political spectrum. For Christian's mental health, he is someone who has lived with anxiety and depression from an early age and often had panic attacks in the form of night terrors as a small child. Christian comes from a loving and supportive working class Leicestershire family but felt huge confusion over his sexuality in his teenage years before coming to the conclusion he was gay. Before he could do that, Christian was bullied in school for expressing signs of gender stereotype nonconformity that led his peers to suspect he was gay before he even realised he was and he was also bullied for his weight. Between the ages of 14 to 20, it was the most difficult period of Christian's mental health and we discussed the impact that this period of poor mental health had on him then now and why he's found the positive tools he's needed through therapy to deal with it and any future mental health difficulties that life might bring him. So this is how my check-in with the legend, the great and the brilliant Christian Hugill went. Christian Hugill, welcome to the Just Checking In pod mate. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. It is so nice to finally chat. We connected on Twitter whilst we both still worked at the Beeb which seems like a very long time ago for me. How are you, mate?
1: Seems like a very long time ago for me as well, Freddie. It's only been about six months, in fact, a bit less. No, I'm very well. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here.
0: No problem, mate. You are someone I've wanted to have on the pod for a long time. And you are someone like me, I think, who maybe defies expectations or assumptions people try and place upon you. So without further delay, because I'm so excited to talk about your journey, are you ready to start the show, mate? Very much so. Looking forward to it. You are a freelance journalist now, mate, and not bound by BBC impartiality, although of course you are a consummate professional, but let's (laughs) discuss this journalism journey first. So tell me why you first became inspired to be one, where your love for writing, storytelling, presenting began, and the journey to where you are today, because I believe it started with a visit by the careers advisor in school. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it did. I was always quite good at talking, and I was always quite good at English at school, But Mm. to be honest, looking back, I wasn't much good at anything else. I I could talk. I could write a bit. I wasn't very good at maths. I was terrible at science. I, I could never get my head around French. Yeah, I wasn't very academic. But I always loved talking to people. And I'd always, from a very young age, goodness knows what prompted it in me, because there's no family history of broadcasting or journalism at all. But. I'd always been fascinated by the TV and by the radio and by presenters and by people talking. And then I went to this careers advisor at my secondary school when I must have been sort of around GCSE level, early GCSE level. And she sort of said, what do you want to do? I was like, "I have absolutely no idea. This is a working class, you know, non-fee paying school in Leicestershire. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And um, I just said, I'm quite good at English. And I'm quite good at talking. And She said, have you thought about broadcast journalism? And it was like, that's a really good idea. And then. It was also around that time that I, basically, when I went to secondary school, my mum sort of laid down the law and said, you got to start waking yourself up in the morning, which seemed a reasonable request to me. And she sent me out, we'd seen in the Argos catalogue, this is how long it was, this is how old I am, Freddie, uh, a £5 clock radio. And she sent me out with a fiver on the number eight bus to Loughborough. I bought this clock radio that was going to wake me up in the morning and it came preaching to Radio 1, which is how I started listening to the Chris Moyle show, which I listened to throughout its entirety of its run on Radio 1. That was when he first started on Breakfast. And within the Chris Moyle show, there was Newsbeat bulletins on Radio 1 Newsbeat. And it was kind of a combination of that careers advisor and hearing the news bits that the news bits particularly interested me i was just sort of became interested in what was going on around me because they put the news in sort of a way that me as a god what 13 year old whatever could understand 13 14 year old and i think the rest as they say is history that was the journey I sort of focused on going into do broadcast journalism I got a little foot in the door of Radio Leicester when a reporter came to my school and they kindly invited me in for a look round which I grabbed the opportunity with both hands and then I fortunately enough got a place at Nottingham Trent University to study broadcast journalism which was about half an hour 40 minutes from where I grew up so it wasn't too far away but just sort strong of radio program away. there yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. and then I did broadcast journalism and then my second year at the end of it, I did a work experience placement at Radio Nottingham, and at the end of that, they said we need people to answer the phones on the ten pm till one am shift on Radio Nottingham. Would you be up for it? And I was like, oh, God! Yeah, of course I would. So I did my first BBC shift in twenty twelve. Went from there to doing newsroom shifts. I sort of was doing newsroom shifts and answering the phone shifts in throughout my last year of uni, and then uni started to get in the way really i then sort of accidentally fell into a year of freelancing with doing radio nottingham a local station called gem 106 While i was there another local station called peak fm just up in chesterfield um just outside the east midlands and then i got a job in there was a new local tv station being set up called knots tv i got a mm-hmm. job there i did a year and a half as its news presenter i did a year and a half as, no a year and a half as a news reporter then did a year and a half as its sports presenter then went freelance and worked all over the shop, and that is where I found Newsbeat. I optimistically sent an email to somebody I knew who worked at Newsbeat, a lovely man called Jonathan Blake, who you now see doing politics on BBC News. Indeed. and Jonathan put me in touch with the right person, and I came in for a trial shift. And when I was in on this trial shift, it was like I liked. It. Well, you yeah, God, it was amazing because I'd grown up listening to Newsbeat, and mm.
0: you saw how the sausage was made. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah quite <laughs> literally. Yeah, and then. Um, did some trial shifts, got some regular shifts freelance, finally got myself a contract and ended up staying for five years and then left six months ago. And now I'm freelancing for everywhere, everywhere, the likes of Talk Sport, Times Radio, where I talk to you from now. I've just been up since three o'clock in the morning having read the breakfast news on Times Radio. So if my voice. You look fresh, possible, mate. I don't feel it, I can assure you. <laughs> but thank you. And yeah, I'm all over the shop now from lbc to times radio to talk sport doing various bits and bobs um mm. a little bit of telly here and there
0: as well and then that's 10 years summed up <laughs> oh it's very concise mate before we talk about radio on in depth just mm. summarize that period where you were going to knots tv you're working and doing those bits and bobs what did you learn during that period because i i'm very a big advocate on this podcast about the importance of not just making mistakes, but learning from them. So what did you learn during this period?
1: I learned everything at Knots TV in particular because there wasn't many of us, you know, it was a low budget local TV network and we were going out making telly on a shoestring budget, but it enabled me to feel confident enough to leave the newsroom at nine o'clock in the morning armed with a camera on my back and self-shoot to edit and present a report by the end of the day. And that experience was vital and It sort of without realizing it set the tone for my career because I've always been I like to think more than just someone who can just turn up and talk I love the editing side of it I love crafting Mm. TV and radio, I can video edit, I can audio edit. And I learned most of those skills through the college I was at, which I mentioned earlier, Rawlins College in Leicestershire, which I should give a huge shout out to, its media department were amazing. I was really lucky that they had a brilliant media department. And then Knotts TV was a phenomenal experience for me because yes, I met, oh God, I would have absolutely made mistakes and learned from them, but it was less making mistakes. It was more learning everything from the presentation side of things mm. to the editing side of things to the finding stories and it was just it was a three-year crash course in journalism and I learned so much and then was sort of actually quite surprised that when I came out and started knocking on the door of BBC East Midlands Today and national broadcasters like Newsbeat that they were like oh yeah you can do it and it was like oh well the stuff I've been doing at Notts TV for the last three years and freelancing for the year after that must have done something right so it, it, Notts TV in particular was such a learning ground for me and I wouldn't be sat here in the one of the UK's biggest newsrooms without that, without question.
0: Let's talk about Newsbeat now and Radio 1 because it was such a big part of your life, mate, and for quite a long period of your life. Mm. So let's start with the positives first. Tell me about, you know, the good times. Tell me about when you first heard your first bulletin back on (laughs) iPlayer or or whatever it was. Did it feel real? Just tell me about Uh, those feelings and emotions.
1: I can remember vividly walking in on my first shadow day, following a man called Toby Seeley, who I now work with in this building, ironically. Everyone knows everyone in the media. Mm. And Toby was the deputy editor of Newsbeat at the time, or assistant editor. He was one of the bosses. I don't fully understand what he did. Hi, Toby, if you're listening. He won't be. (laughs) And um, I remember vividly walking in, and Nick Grimshaw used to stand up to do the breakfast show. And when you walk into the Radio 1, there are two entrances you can go into. And mm-hmm. if you walk into the left side on the eighth floor of New Broadcasting House, directly in front of you, all the studios, the main Radio 1 studios, which is now called 82 Mills after Scott Mills, but the 82 Mills studio, you can see directly in front of you. So I walked in and the first thing I saw, it's like, oh my God, that's Nick Grimshaw doing his mm-hmm. show over there. And then it was probably that day, where I shadowed a lovely, delightful man called Stefan Powell. And if you're a regular Radio 1 listener and a regular Newsbeat listener, you'll know he's one of the most Welsh people on the radio. <laughs> uh, he is spectacular, Which is saying Welsh. something for Welsh
0: people as well. <laughs> uh,
1: and Stefan is the most Welsh of the Welsh. And he's also a phenomenal presenter, an outstanding journalist, one of the loveliest men I've ever met. And I shadowed Stefan on my first day, a proper Newsbeat legend. And Stefan practically did all the work. And I just voiced this piece, which was about some form of conflict, some form of war. God, I can't even remember what it was now. And hearing it go out, at the time, Newsbeat was presented by a guy called Chris Smith, who was known for being Greg James's sort of sidekick. And hearing Newsbeat's Christian Hugiel being read out by Chris Smith was Unreal. I can remember that day so vividly. And I can remember my wonderful friends reacting madly in the WhatsApp group, being like, hello to Alex Griffiths and Ben Jones, who I can remember being like, oh, my God, it's NewsBeats Christian Hugill. And uh, that was sweet to them, because normally they're not particularly nice to me. They're not particularly <laughs> pleasant people, my friends. But on that occasion, they were really lovely to me. I can remember it vividly. Oh, it was mad. And I'm having left in five years from that day to my final day in June of this year, To have got to do the news on the Radio 1 Breakfast Show with Greg, to have read the news with Grimmy and Scott Mills, and to have got to work with and sort of know some of these people and talk to them and see them on social occasions and to to have been on Newsbeat and to have presented the 15-minute program on Newsbeat. I still can't believe it happened. I, Mm. I, I genuinely can't. It came and went so quickly, but it was a dream come true. And, you know, also there's a dream job. That was one of... The dream jobs. I'm just so proud to have done it and so grateful for the
0: experience. It was phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, I look back on it with such warmth. You spoke about dreams there, and you know, you are, apart from my best mate, James Lamb, who's one of the biggest F1 fans I know, you are (laughs) also a massive F1 fan. And at the time at Newsbeat, there was only one sports reporter. So, being the F1 keynote you are in the nicest way possible, how did that gap? allow you to sort of live out that dream and report on f1 and go to f1
1: newsbeat's a really interesting place because anyone who works at newsbeat is incredibly lucky because there are a lot of newsrooms that you go to and they say you need to cover this story and of course there's an element of that at newsbeat do this story here you are yes fine however the opportunities you had at newsbeat was if you were interested in a particular thing particularly the best time to be at newsbeat is when you're in the target audience and at that point i'm in my late 20s i'm in radio one and one extra target audience so it's you know, if I'm interested in something, there's a good chance the listeners are interested in something. So people like me, you know, I've always been an F1 geek. I was watching mm-hmm. F1 in the 2000s when I was a child and Michael Schumacher was winning the great Michael Schumacher every weekend. But it was boring and nobody was watching. But now we're in an era where Formula 1 is really popular amongst young fans, mm. thanks to...
0: Drive to, to Survive, drive largely. To survive, yeah.
1: yeah, and the Twitch streamers like Lando Norris mm-hmm. and yeah. Charlotte yep. Clare and these young, exciting drivers. We're in a brilliant age of Formula 1. So I was basically able to say to Newsbeat, we should be doing this and showing my knowledge to say, "Listen, this is how I can relate it to our audience, and I want to try and make it accessible to people who aren't just, you know, Formula One yeah. fans, but petrol heads. Gen- yeah, well, yeah, yeah, not yeah. just petrol heads, general yeah. Newsbeat listeners. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they were brilliant with it. They allowed me some time to make contacts in Formula One, and eventually that led to interviewing George Russell before his first race, and that led to interviewing Max Verstappen and Alex Albon at Red Bull. And the more contacts I gained, and The more I could give them exposure on Radio 1, Mm -hmm. the more they trusted me personally that these are the world's best motor racing drivers. Not everyone gets to interview them. So if I had gone and made a mess of the first time I'd interviewed George Russell, I'd have never interviewed him again. But they got to know me and they knew that I knew the sport. and, And it culminated. Basically, I tried to sort of three or four times a year at least do a big F1 thing, whether that's to mark the start of the season the end of the season the british grand prix a particularly big race and that culminated with um well it started with an article about some f1 mechanics with the williams team some young lads telling us what it was like to travel around the world with the williams team in 2017 article still on the internet somewhere and it ended with me in march of this year 2022 going to bahrain to cover the first race of the season which was another quite literal i'm a very lucky boy dream come true and it was again just pitching to newsbeat that this was a a once in a lifetime thing with formula 1 of the new rule changes and the v- ridiculous battle between max verstappen and lewis hamilton and let's go and cover all that and here's a way i can do it without spending an awful lot of money in the grand scheme of things and i went on my own did it the most intense weekend of my life i barely slept but it was phenomenal. And in the last few weeks, been nominated for an audio production award for Best Sports Producer for doing it, which was just fantastic. So I'm so lucky. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal weekend. As I say, tiring. My goodness Mm -hmm. me, I slept afterwards. But um, but it was wonderful.
0: We've talked about the positives of Radio 1. Unfortunately, we're going to have to talk about the negative, which was you ended up leaving Radio 1 Newsbeat, Christian, because there was some restructuring the BBC and your role was being moved to Birmingham and you couldn't relocate for personal reasons. So first of all, take me back to that day and how you felt when you were told that the job, that in your words to me, was more than a job was coming to an end.
1: It was more than a job. I loved Newsbeat. And I think what made it more than a job was I did and still do passionately believe in the importance of the program. You know, there is so little news that's accessible to young people yes. in this country it's pretty much you know on a traditional scale on the traditional tv and radio you know newsbeat and news round that's pretty much well, yeah.
0: it please i couldn't do it forever
1: please <laughs> couldn't do it forever exactly so it was more than a job i got a phone call from one of my bosses on a normal shift we're still in the midst of a pandemic i'm on a reporting shift from home in what would have been <sighs> well i left newsbeat moved in september 2022 so this would have been in march 2021 and i said i was off the following day and my mm-hmm. boss said to me you need to be on a zoom call at seven o'clock tomorrow morning and it was like i'm off tomorrow yeah. and i was sort of like i'm off tomorrow i'll catch it no 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 everyone needs to be whether they're on or not everyone needs to be and in the well, four years i've been at Newsbeat to that point three and a half four years i would never had a you know a, as we say in politics a three-line whip you need yes. to do this i would never had that so it's like something's going on I'm a journalist, Freddie, so I knew something was going on, but I wanted to find out what. And I'd been told you'll find out at seven o'clock in the morning, but I wasn't going to sit there and find out. I wanted to know what was going on. So through a couple of sources who shall remain nameless, I found out what was going on. And the rumour was that Newsbeat was going to be moved to a different part of the country as part of the BBC's plans to relocate jobs around the country. And that was exactly what we got told the following morning. And we got told Newsbeat's moving in September 2021. Sorry, Newsbeat's moving in September 2022, and that was March 2021, and it was like, you know, that's it, it's moving. And some people were able to move with it. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, because it had only been at that point, for the first year I was at Newsbeat, I was commuting, ironically, from the Midlands. Newsbeat ended up moving to Birmingham, I was commuting from Nottingham. I'd only actually been living in London just over two years at that point. And, you know, anyone who has moved their life to a different country or a significantly different part of the world knows how big a deal that is. Yeah, you know, 100%. I'm away from my friends and family, you know, and my boyfriend had found a job down in London, bless him. He's left his job in Nottingham to move with me to London. So we weren't able to two years later go, right, come on, we're going back. <laughs> Fettled He'd be like, what? Happy. I've yeah, just done all fett- this. settled <laughs> and happy in his job down here. So it was never on the cards for me to move again. It wasn't physically possible unless I wanted to move away from my boyfriend, which we've been together too long to consider that. Mm. So at that point, I began to realise, well, it's coming to an end. It, this this is it. Did it feel like a grief? It's been a massive grief. It's realising that there's nothing I can do and that it is going to come to an end, probably realistically, maybe 18 months to two years sooner than I'd have liked it to. I think probably in an ideal world, I'd have been looking to leave Newsbeat middle of 2023, say, you know, another year, another 18 months. I had a bit more time left in me there, I think. So there was the realisation that this is coming to an end sooner than I'd have perhaps Mm. liked it to. Not
0: on your terms, yeah.
1: Yeah, there was the grief at the way it was handled. I didn't Mm. think the BBC handled it very well. It certainly was upsetting for a lot of us, and I don't think they handled that well. And then there was grief after it finished. You know, there was grief, you know, while it was finishing and after it finished. Um, we're recording this at, at, in, um, I'm sure you don't mind me saying in, in November 2022. And, and, you know, I've only left since June. And it's probably only in the last couple of months that I'd say I properly got over that grief because I did miss it. You know, I hugely missed it and had to get used to it being over. And I think I'm through that now. I think I'm in a really mm. good place with it. But grief is exactly the word I'd use. One of my old bosses who went through the same process and moved on said, you've got to ride the waves. And we did really ride the waves of realising that this dream job that I'd always wanted was coming to an end. And so suddenly... And then once it had gone, sort of being out in the big wide world and being freelance again, it was like, right, that's done. So it was hard. I'm Mm. very happy to admit that. But Mm. I do believe I'm in one of the happiest places I've been in a long time at the moment. So, you know, I've come out the other side of it and I'm so happy with what I'm doing at the moment. But it was tricky. Yeah, Mm. it was a grief. That's that's a very astute way of putting it.
0: At that point, you told me that work was perhaps a, a positive escape or positive distraction from things that we'll probably discuss later on in the pod, mate. So when the work became the issue did everything just feel like a big cocktail of of crap
1: i found that really tricky because as you say, we'll get into a bit later but if ever i struggled with my mental health i loved my job so i know that distractions are good for my mental health it's not just work another thing i like to do is game or exercise or swim i have these coping mechanisms and as you say i'm sure we'll go into this but work was one of them getting my head stuck into an edit doing a bulletin shift, going out and about. It was the most brilliant distraction for me whenever I was struggling. And all of a sudden, I had realised it had become the root cause of my mental health being in a really bad place. It was hugely stressful. I, I was stressed and worried for my future and how I was going to earn money. I was desperately upset that a dream job was coming to an end. I was frustrated and angry at the way I was being treated. There was all these cocktails of mm-hmm. emotion. And you know, we all spend so much time at work, you know, 40, 50 hours a week. And it felt at one stage like there was no escape. It was really hard. And all, and all of a sudden, the thing that was my escape... And I'm... God, right? one of my school reports said, Christian, that only creates distractions but seeks distractions around him. That's so <laughs> it's the, true. It's the code
0: of influence like in The Simpsons. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it is so true. I have to enjoy what I do. Otherwise, I'm like a child. My attention goes. I look for other things. And I struggle if I'm not enjoying myself. I really struggle. And I wasn't enjoying myself anymore because of all the stuff that was not the you know the job I enjoyed, but it was all the stuff that go around mm-hmm. and leaving, colleagues leaving and the team being disbanded. It was really difficult. I struggled. Yeah, I really struggled. I had to really train myself to find the distractions outside of work and try new distractions. And, and, you know, there's always been other distractions. It's not like it's only ever been work. You know, I've got a wonderful boyfriend. You know, I've got brilliant friends. I've got an active social life. There's always been other distractions, but it was about really training myself to look at the other things in my life. You know, I've got this fantastic boyfriend. I've, I've got these wonderful friends. I've got stuff to do. I've got an amazing family behind me. I'm so close to my mum and dad. I'm really sort of, even if it's as little things as right, I'm going to go on the PlayStation now and I'm going to get lost in driving a Formula One car and not doing a brilliant job of it, uh, uh, you know, and crashing at Monza. I'm going (laughs) to focus on this for a bit or I'm going to focus on, yeah, I'm trying to get Leicester City out of this bad run of Formula in on FIFA. (laughs) Just anything that could take my mind away. I had to get much better at finding things to, because otherwise you fixate on things and you find yourself in the shower thinking about, the rubbish stuff on a day off and you're like i need to really push mm. it to the you know distract myself i've found that distractions for want of a better term is a good way of managing my personal mental health
0: before we talk about the industry issues you want to discuss you are now freelance again yes. and a lot of your work as you said is split between Talksport, lbc and a few other outlets and bits and bobs and you're all over the gaff whenever i see you on twitter to be fair so how do you feel now and as well you wanted to talk about the fact that you're not doing as much Formula One work, but you'd like to get back into that.
1: Yeah, double-headed question. I'm loving what I'm doing now. LBC in particular have been so brilliant to me. When I left Newsbeat, there was one station I knew I wanted to work at because I love it, and that's LBC. I've been such an admirer of LBC from afar. I love anything that does news with a bit of pizzazz, a bit of personality, a bit of spark, a bit of character. And that's LBC in a nutshell. And, and I just love the way they've invested in news and love the way they do news and love to know that you can go to get the news from them. And their sister station, LBC News, is a wonderful service as well with, under, with a million listeners on the sister station. LBC is such a massive beast. Of two you know radio stations in this country It's such a massive beast of a name. And that was the one I was like, I'd love to work for them. So I sort of set about... Going, oh, I'd love to. I'd love to go and work for them, and also talk sport because I'm, I'm a big talk sport fan as well. And LBC in particular, where I spend a lot of time, were just fantastic with me. They invited me in. They like my sometimes, you know, putting a bit of a sense of humour into the news. They like my style of not taking it seriously if I don't have to, and explaining stuff, and all the things I was able to do at Newsbeat and letting me be creative. And I'm so grateful to them because you know I'm not there full time, but I'm there um, at least a few times a week, and it feels like a little second home. They've been fantastic to oh, me. Um, so that's really helped me regain some confidence i also did some work with virgin radio who again just threw me on air and went do what you do we really like it and that was a huge confidence boost when you've been through such a lot and even going into other places like little bits with channel five who again said oh we really like what you do and it's just been such a confidence boost so Mm. i've been so grateful to these places for restoring my confidence in myself that i can do this because after you go through a redundancy you're like oh well I'm actually good at this. And they've really, really restored my confidence. So I'm in a really happy place and enjoying grasping other opportunities. And that leads me into Formula One. Yes, I would love to do more Formula One. There has been little bits since I left the BBC, but they've been quite few and far between. But there's equally never been a week where I've not had a Formula One discussion with someone about something. So I hope, Freddie, that next year, there'll be a bit more of it, but let's Manifest see. it, mate. We're None manifesting it
0: on the pod. We're we manifesting are, it. Yeah, we're manifesting it. We'll yeah, come back just... to this in a year's time. I'll be like, Christian, remember you said that? And now you're at Monza or somewhere else. We'll say actively working on it. That's Yeah, we, we, go. Fire that yeah, we go. Let's talk about the industry issues that you want to discuss through a mental health lens, mate. So first off is the news cycle. And mm. it's been a lot in the last five years, I'm going to yeah. say. That's probably the best way I can put it. It's become much more polarizing it's become much more all-consuming talking heads as we put it in air quotes are getting more and more prominence shall we say on Mm. radio on tv on broadcast and you track this momentum or trend back to the 2016 eu referendum Mm. so tell me about your perspective on this and how the perpetual or the constant news cycle the 24-7 news cycle I should say how has this affected your mental health as a journalist and as a person I'd say as well
1: I can remember another very vivid memory of we in 2019 there was a a winter Christmas whatever you want to call it general election and I'm going to mention it for the second time in this podcast I'm sure he doesn't remember this conversation but I do but our Christmas party at Newsbeat the Friday after we'd finally done our last programme before Christmas, and it was the election special. A few of us had been travelling up and down the country doing this election roadshow led by Stefan Powell. And I, remember, and I remember Stefan saying to me, it's just been so mad ever since the referendum. It's been so mad. But, you know, we've had the election. The Conservatives have got this landslide. Brexit's going to happen. God, isn't it great? Finally, it can all go back to normal.
0: <laughs> little did we, know. little <laughs>
1: did we know. No, March came the pandemic. And news has never been normal since. Brexit stopped news ever being normal. And, you know, we moved into a new phase of history. Mm. People who study the UK. Before COVID and
0: after COVID, BC and AC, basically, isn't it? And also,
1: I think, yes. And also, I think before and after Brexit as well. You know, I think Brexit was the period of time where it all changed. And what has happened, I've seen in the 10 years I'm in the industry, is news has become more divisive. And I think Mm. Brexit and the Brexit vote was such a big part of that. You were so passionately... Four, or you were so passionately Remain, and Conservatives became so passionately Conservatives, and Labour became so passionately Labour. And what it became is, I'm a Leicester City football fan, and if Jamie Vardy misses a chance that he should have put away, despite my bias towards Leicester City, I can go, Jamie, you should have scored. But we've gone into this position where, no matter what you said in a bulletin, and obviously on Radio 1, a lot of people are going to hear, if you said... The Conservatives are saying this about Labour, or Labour are saying this about the Conservatives. I was the biased one. You know, I was just reporting on what, you know, Labour say this is bad about the Mm. Tories. I'm biased for even reporting that. Shoot the messenger. Yeah, Yeah. how dare you think that anybody of our Labour Party could do anything wrong? Jeremy Corbyn could do nothing wrong. Boris Johnson could do nothing wrong. Mm. The media has become so divisive. And I think... Sometimes the media hasn't helped itself. Let's be honest, you know, we all could talk about journalistic practices. You look at the Leveson inquiry where journalists have got a reputation, but that is not all journalists. And I'll give you one example from just two weeks ago where I was out filming for LBC. There was myself and a camera operator and we were stood in a random town square in South London and we were setting up our camera. The camera wasn't on, we were chatting about what we needed to film. Oh God, this could go anywhere. Yeah, And I got shouted at from across the road. You're stopping me from doing my job. How dare you? Go away. And a security guard from Tesco was accusing us of filming a homeless man. We didn't even even see the homeless man was there. You journalists should know better. And we got berated and shouted at for filming this homeless. We weren't filming the homeless man. We were setting up a camera. We were about to go and talk to people about Mm. the cost of living. And it was like, we were saying what they actually thought that we, as journalists, go, look, a homeless person. Let's go and film someone less fortunate than ourselves. I'm a nice person. I turn up, I do the job to the best of my abilities, Mm. and I go home, and there is this view of journalists now and this mood, I'm not saying it's all down to Brexit, but certainly post-Brexit vote, the mood towards journalists has just changed, and so many people seem to think we are scum. And again, COVID has played into this because again, if you were anti-lockdown, well, we were biased towards the government. We were part of a conspiracy theory that was keeping everybody in. You know, again, Mm. COVID happened again. People have such a negative view towards journalists, I've found, in so many places. And the news has become so divisive. You're pro-lockdown. You're against lockdown. You think the vaccines are great. You think the vaccines are terrible. You're pro-Brexit, you're anti-Brexit, you're Labour, you're Tory. The news is so divisive. And for a journalist who, you know, so many of my friends who aren't journalists say to me, I just switch off the news. Yeah, but I can't because it's mm. my job. And that was my next it.
0: question. How do you switch off? Can you switch off? You, Is it even possible? You, you have to get a lot better at
1: going. I'm off work. So I went to America with my partner a few weeks back and I made the biggest concerted effort. Twitter, Instagram came off my phone. Yep. Emails came off my phone. It was so important for my mental health to make that clean break because otherwise... I can't do it. I won't, you know, today's Saturday we're recording this. I've worked Monday to Saturday. I'll have a day off tomorrow on Sunday. And then guess what I'm doing on Monday? Back to the news. So, yeah, I'll have a break tomorrow. I won't look at any news tomorrow. I have learnt the importance since news moved into this new era of extremeness, shall we say, to switch off. It's so important. Those things are few and far between. And I find news a much more exhausting industry to be in than I did five
0: years ago. Before we reflect on your journalism journey, the final topic we're going to discuss quickly is social class, mate. And it's one I've discussed with a few journalists. You are a proudly working class man. You come from humble backgrounds in Leicestershire, like you said earlier in the podcast. So tell me why you wanted to discuss social class and I guess access in the industry through a mental health lens.
1: I think it falls into a bit of imposter syndrome because... Mm. um, you know, the reason you say I wanted to talk about it is, you know, you asked me the question, is there anything you've ever thought standing away in journalism? And, and I suppose sexuality and class have been the two things that have made me think, am I a fish out of water in this industry? Because, listen, I was not raised in the rough streets. I was brought up in a very nice village on the outskirts of Loughborough, and, and I was very fortunate. But I was brought up by two very proudly working-class people a medical secretary and a police officer whose parents were bus conductors and pub landlords, a proper working-class family I was born into who did incredibly well for themselves and were able to make us live in a lovely house in a lovely Mm -hmm. village. But I was brought up on proper working-class values. I went to to schools that you wouldn't class them as rough schools. You wouldn't class them as posh schools. You know, these were bang average schools Mm. where I remember once somebody saying to me, we were you a head boy? And it was like, we did not have head boy. We didn't have prefect, like gods that was a million miles from the school I was at. We had fights at lunchtime. We had reminders of don't bring knives into school. Uh, mm. You know, that was the school. Me, you
0: both, mate. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, so here's some colleagues talking about prefects and head boys. It was like, no, no, no. no. And what house know, were you in? What? What's, what? what's that? <laughs> uh, yeah. And did you go on the two grand ski trip? And yeah, it was like, yeah, yeah. No. And um, all of a sudden, you get into this industry and you realize in conversations like that, you're like, I'm the only one who didn't go to private school. Mm. Okay. I'm the only one who isn't a bit posh sometimes and you can really feel a little bit like do I belong here and again working in sport as you say I've always done news and sport and I've sort of had the same thing again with sometimes being the only gay person and you're like sometimes you know various conversations it become, become obvious and you sort of think should I be here is this right and you sort of have to feed off the imposter syndrome or push away the imposter syndrome a little bit being like no there's a reason people pay me to do this I'm all right at it and but sometimes you think I'm not sure I should be here because I'm not as posh as these people. I've not got the education these people have got. I wasn't any good at school. I wasn't academic. I, and I'm working in news. I'm working in politics or I'm working in sport. And it's like, should I be here? So that's something that weighs on your mind a lot in broadcasting. It's like, am I actually any good at this? Am I Am I blagging this? And again, that's something that when the self-doubt creeps in, you really have to train yourself to be like, no, no, you can do this. And I probably didn't have... Much of that until the last couple of years, when going through redundancy knocks your confidence and you start to feel all the self doubts a lot more. I would say. So when you ask me the question of, you know, does anything cause the self doubt? Well, I suppose, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm a white male, so I'm never going to have experienced racism, and I'm never going to have experienced sexism.
0: But classism.
1: Yeah, you certainly accentism. Know it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god! You, God, you are East Midlands accent? That's amazing. Mm. Or you know when you witness casual homophobia and hear of casual homophobia, it can be be quite tricky. And you sort of think, is this an environment where I belong? So they're the two areas of journalism that have made me question and broadcasting whether I belong because it sometimes can feel a bit posh and sometimes uh, sports can feel a bit straight. The rest of broadcasting isn't. There's loads of gays in broadcasting, (laughs) especially radio. Loads of them. You wouldn't believe it. But in sport, (laughs) I've been in the
0: BBC, mate. Don't worry about that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: But sport, you know, can feel very yes straight and again you're like okay is this fine but you know you just have to crack on and guess what gays like sport too and some of them talk about them on the tv and radio and that's what i try and do and and, yeah and hope it's fine
0: did you internalize that there's a stereotype and it's a harmful stereotype that's you know for gay men that they can't like sport or they don't like sport so did you internalize that stereotype almost yeah
1: as a kid yes without question you know and without veering into mental health but but at the age of 14 when I first started realising I might be gay, it was like, well, I can't be, because I love football, I love motorsport, I've got a season ticket at Leicester City, I raced karts, I was lucky enough to, you know, do a bit of motor racing at the time, and, well, I can't be. But well, That was what I genuinely yeah. believed, as, yeah, yeah, yeah. as someone who was 14 and what, we, you know, however, I'm 31 now, that was what mm. I genuinely believed. I can't be, so I pushed it away. And that stays with you a little bit. It stays with you even now, where you're like, you know, you becomes clear you're the only gay sports journalist on a team, and you're like, is right. And and mm. it is, it is. you know, And it you is right, exactly. And be yeah. anything you want to yes. do. You can be LGBT plus and do anything you want to do. Uh, and that's my big mantra. But we all have these little self-doubt moments. And even people on the outside, you know, the people who are closest to me know that while I appear externally a very confident person, I'm not. You know, <laughs> I'm not. I just talk for a living. And that's mm. quite good at hiding some things.
0: Let's reflect now on your journalism journey, Christian. So doing it for the time you have, what has it taught you about yourself? Good Lord, that's a good question. What has it
1: taught me about myself? It's taught me that I'm probably more resilient than I gave myself credit for. I think I've been through quite a lot in 10 years since my first shift. I think I've had so many ups and downs and, and ridden the waves, and I'm quite proud of myself and my resilience. I think it's taught me I'm more sensitive than perhaps. In, in many ways, I'm really not sensitive. In many ways, I really am sensitive. I think if people treat me badly, that sticks with me. And, and my dad, who I get so much of my values from life from, like 90% of my values, like. I am my dad's son. And my dad's always to treat people the way you you want to be treated. And Mm -hmm. I could vividly remember him drilling that into me as a kid. And I'm so glad he did. One of the things I'm so glad my dad did drill into me as a kid, because I think when people have treated me the way I don't think they should have done, it's really stuck with me. And I think it's made me realize that I'm a, I'm a sensitive soul as well.
0: Which is fine, mate, which is good.
1: Yeah. I am as well, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's nothing wrong with that. So I think, maybe journalism and broadcasting has taught me that maybe i didn't know 10 years ago that i am in many ways tougher than i realized but also in many ways a lot more sensitive than i realized in different areas i know that's a conflicting answer but i think in
0: subtle different areas of my life i've learned that both apply we've checked in about christian the journalist Let's dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, mate. So I ask all my special guests this question on this topic first. Walk me through early life in Leicestershire, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Christian we meet here?
1: I, I, listen, I had an incredibly happy childhood, brought up by two wonderful parents, barking mad parents, the two of them, <laughs> barking mad people in the best possible way. Love them to the world and back, my parents and my amazing brother, and we had the most wonderful family set up. And I think most of us now know that you're born with certain mental health difficulties. In the same way, as they all say, you know, physical illnesses can come on out of nowhere, as can mental health. And despite having this wonderful setup, I used to have panic attacks as a kid. You know, I used to wake up in the middle of the night having panic attacks. And that's what I now know, thanks to therapy, really. That's where my mental health journey started, because... I would have panic attacks as a kid and, and would wake up in the night physically shaking and not knowing where I am and sort of like, oh God, I'm here. And it would happen when I was at, staying over at grandparents, it would mm. happen fairly regularly. And it was panic attacks of thinking, oh my God, something's wrong. And I know that I will have to manage my anxiety and my depression for the rest of my life because that's part of me and that's who I am. But that's where it started. As young as four, five, six, that's where it started. I will never know why it started and i think there is ever a reason to why you know as i say or something i think it's genuinely something i suspect i was probably born with but that's when i first started having anxious spells i would say aside from that i was a very happy perky talkative loud child just now i'm a happy perky talkative loud man so yeah, yeah much like me just, mate just a smaller <laughs> version of me and yeah, i'm quite <laughs> small now
0: <laughs> when we move on to school mate your school experience wasn't as positive as life outside of it because like me you were bullied and unlike me you were bullied for one reason your sexuality and also like me you're bullied for your weight as another reason so we're going to discuss your sexuality in depth in a bit but just tell me about the question we meet at this point you know what form of abuse did that bullying take and how did it impact your mental health then?
1: I think I'd been brought up in such a positive environment by the most loving family and we were a loving, and are a loving family. And then it was a real shock to the system going to school. Because mm. kids can be cruel, as we all know. And I do remember people telling me that my school years are the best year of my life. And I now look <laughs> back at school and think, I bloody hated it. Most of school, I don't think I enjoyed. And that's despite some wonderful teachers. Some not bad schools, as I said. But I wasn't particularly academic. So most lessons bought on... Huge senses of anxiety. How am I going to get through this science lesson? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not as bright as the other kids. It brought on bullying for my weight because I had the sort of puffy fat. I was a chubby kid that everyone goes through. And I got really bullied for that. And I remember that crushed me. And I remember being out in Loughborough on a Saturday with my mum and dad and walking to the toilet. We'd stopped for lunch somewhere, some cafe, and walking past two girls from my school and them laughing at me. And as I looked behind me, They were laughing at me. They went, yeah, that's the fat one from school. And, oh, my God, that crushed me. Like, So the weight bullying really stayed with me because I was just so crushed that people could take the mickey out of me for that. And the weight dropped off when I got older. Uh, You know, it was a puppy fat thing. Mm, Same. But I was just so shocked that kids could do that because I'd been brought up in this lovely loving home so yeah the bullying for my weight and it stays it's what I, it's a big part of the reason i go to the gym and it's a big part of the reason even now when i've just signed onto the zoom call and i haven't got my laptop stand with me and i'm looking at my double chin as i'm looking down i'm like oh god you know it, st- it stays with you we all know it stays with you i say i've got so, fat boy
0: fred living inside me always whenever i go get you know a yeah. packet of donuts and eat three in one go that's that's fat boy fred living inside me still. and when <laughs>
1: you are on an early shift like i've just done and you've had two breakfasts like yeah, <laughs> yeah. E- exactly so no i think that stayed with me a lot and mm. um, it shocked me me but you know i didn't have a horrific experience at school but i just looked back at it and realized how little of it i actually enjoyed i didn't mm. enjoy most of the lessons because i wasn't very good at it i wasn't very academic i felt like i was having to keep up with other people i didn't enjoy being bullied for my weight and i didn't enjoy being bullied for my sexuality even though it would be 10 years or so whatever until age 20 21 when i came out as gay and i was being bullied for being gay before i even knew what gay meant so
0: Oh, yeah. I had a friend of the pod, James Conlon, who is a big supporter of, of Venice, a good friend of mine. And and he experienced what you experienced, Christian, in the sense that you were bullied before being gay, before you knew what gay was and before you you know accepted yourself. And he said, no one should be able to tell you who you are before you do. Do you share any commonality with that experience? Yes,
1: yes. And when I did come out as gay, some fairly well-intentioned people said, well, I've always known. And that really cut me because it was like, well, you didn't. You might have guessed but i didn't and until i knew it wasn't fact and i realized i was gay fully when i was 20 and came out a few months after so yes that is something i would definitely go along with it's not a helpful thing to say cause I, i've always known well you've always guessed and you always thought you might but actually you didn't know because if i didn't know
0: no one else did we both know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway for the purpose of the listeners. What would have been the right thing for those people to have said to you?
1: Well, just, you don't need to say too much, to be honest. When just like,
0: saying, cool, great.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm happy for you. Glad <laughs> you're, happy. you're happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let me know if you ever need to chat. You know, it yeah. doesn't need to be, oh, I've always known. Yeah, and it's in- well-intentioned and that's not of caused course, me any yeah, great yeah. problems. Yeah. But yeah, you just offer someone support. You know, you don't need to make it about you. Mm. is another thing as well you know oh i've always known well good for you i'm very pleased for you you know i'm sure you love being right but in this situation not the best thing to say
0: yeah i spoke to another guest called joseph martin who spoke about going through what you've gone through and this sense of if i come out will it prove in inverted commas i'm not saying this is the right thing but prove the bullies right so to speak did you internalize that fear as well
1: no i don't think i did to be honest i care a little bit what people think about me but i am a bit like no, I was worried about what my friends and family would think, but not about what the bullies think. I've There's never... an irony
0: there that they, yeah. they were the ones who were going to have the positive reactions. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I've yeah. never
1: cared about what the bullies would say. Okay, cool. no, I, I've been quite good in terms of. In fact, I've always had quite a good determination to prove people wrong. I remember being told by Leeds University, "Hi, Leeds University, you're not suited for broadcast journalism." Well, I've done all right. So, I, you know, I've always been quite motivated by people to prove them wrong, and i.e sometimes when you're in you know when I was trying to lose weight it's like I'll prove these guys wrong so more it was motivation to prove people wrong but not but if I'm gay well I'm gay and then yeah that's yeah, that's if you've got an issue with that you've got an issue with that so mm. that was never too much of a thing for me personally but I can totally see why it would be for other people
0: tell me about the moment when you came out because like you said it, it's become that positive experience view and and the coming out story for every gay man or gay woman I've interviewed is different and it's unique and no one should be forced as well to come out I should say that's really important to say on the podcast. So what happened when you did? And tell me about your feelings in the weeks and months after. Did anything change? Did you did you decide to do anything differently? Or did you decide to start doing something that you weren't doing before? What can you tell me here?
1: I decided to stop battling it at one particular point in the summer between first and second year of uni, end of first year. And once I stopped battling it, and bear in mind, I'd been battling it for about four or five years then it all fell into place quite quickly. Once I stopped forcing it away and saying, you can't be gay, if I am, let's deal with this. And once I did, then all the jigsaw pieces fell into place. When I did come out, it wasn't easy at all. I didn't have brilliant reaction initially from some family members. Later, everything has worked out fantastically, but yes, things did change because my family in some parts really struggled with it. So a lot changed and it didn't get fixed for a good couple of years. And that was very, very difficult. Mm. My friends were phenomenal. And I don't know if they know how grateful I am, because that felt quite a lonely period of life. And I, you know, can't speak highly enough of my family, but in the very understandable adjustment period, It's tricky because you sort of feel like that family unit isn't there or might not be there in future and you have those worries. So having the support of my friends in that period was vital. It's very understandable that parents, particularly parents who were brought up in a generation where newspapers are printing slurs about gay people all the time, the sort of thing that transgender people put up with now, it is entirely understandable. I do not attach the slightest hint of blame to anyone from that era who struggles initially, providing there's love in their heart, which good Lord with my family, there's more love than you can ever, ever wish to have. And that's why it's eventually worked out amazingly. But you know, when parents have grown up in the 60s, 70s, 80s or grandparents before that and life and culture is very different, it's very understandable they're going to mm. struggle and, and when in that struggle period it was really tricky, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean we only have to think about the treatment that George Michael got, God rest his soul, all sorts of other gay icons at that point yeah. and the, the treatment they got and the, the incredibly harsh treatment they got from the press, uh, from the public, you know I went to a school which was a Christian, very socially conservative and the rampant homophobia that went on mm. in schools right up until well, I, mean, I left secondary school in 2010 so right up until then i think it was pretty normalized for homophobic language and behavior to be out there and said commonly so i can only imagine what it's like for all of my gay listeners to come out during that period especially i want to move on now to 2017 2018 mate because mm. you're in your first year at radio one you're loving life you're loving this dream job you're in but Your mental health starts to go a little bit awry, shall we say. So tell me about the Christian here in regards to your mental health. And why was it quite a pivotal moment for your mental health? I think
1: the answer to that question in short is it's the time I realised I needed some help. You know, this is a kid that's always had mental health troubles because, as I say, right from four, five, six, I'm having panic attacks. And even at school, I'm getting worried about science lessons because I know I'm no good at science and that anxiety's creeping in and thinking how... This has always been there. But yet, you know, in 2016, you said, do you suffer with your mental health? I'd have said, no, no, I'm fine. Because, you know, you're not taught, we we weren't then, you you weren't taught about mental health. It's abstract to us, isn't it? You
0: you thought it was only people who are, yeah, yeah, quotes a stereotype of a homeless man or homeless person in the park, you know, having a schizophrenic episode or something like that. That's how you thought mental health was, not you, not everyone who has general mental health.
1: No, But a number of things built up. I think part of it was, Dealing with the pressure of trying Newsbeat when I first arrived was a competitive environment. It wasn't always the most welcoming of newsrooms to go into. It was sink or swim. And I'd seen freelancers like me go in and sink Mm -hmm. and not be invited back. So I think little bits of the pressure of trying to perform at work, the pressure of moving to London when that came Also, a thing of probably never really dealing with some of the things from childhood that I've been talking about, Mm -hmm. particularly around sexuality, I think it all came to a head and I realised I need some help here. There was a couple of moments where I thought that, no, this isn't right, I shouldn't feel like this. I scared myself with how I was feeling. Mm. I never felt like I was going to take my own life, but only because of the people around me. I think i reached the point where it's like, if I hadn't got the friends and family, I just wouldn't want to do this anymore because I'm always sad or I'm always worried. I'm anxious. The anxiety at that point was the real big thing for me. And when I started having those thoughts of, do you know, I just, I'd rather not be here. I got a bit scared. It was like, hang on a minute. I have always been so happy, go lucky, loud. This is not me. I've lost myself somewhere here. And The one thing I was fortunately able to do, and this is why I give huge credit to the BBC, is I was able to ring the employee... um, Assistance programme, yeah. Exactly, thank you. That's what I was looking for. And they put me in touch with a therapist who I stroked with and didn't think I was particularly getting anywhere with. But the second therapist they put me in touch with was amazing, this woman called Jerry, And I had face-to-face sessions with her right up until the pandemic. And it was the turning point because... As I said, I'm not sitting here going, and my mental health is fixed. (laughs) We sometimes like
0: to think that and then life hits you fast.
1: (laughs) I I will have to keep an eye and manage my mental health for the rest of my life in the same way I manage my physical health. Mm -hmm. But, Jerry gave me the understanding of where it's come from, that I am an anxiety sufferer, that I am a depression sufferer, but most crucially, as well as where it's come from and a bit of understanding, she helped me with how I can deal with it where you can go yes and little things like what are the analogies she gave was when you're in one of these periods. you know when you're at work i'm sat in an office now and the and the fire alarm goes off and it's so piercingly loud and you can't get on with your work and they have told you you don't need to go anywhere it's a false alarm but this alarm's stuck on we've all been in one of these situations and it's brr, brr, mm. and it is blaring at you that is not forever that alarm will go off and you will be able to go back to your work and your headspace with huh. I can concentrate and that is how I see a lot of my anxiety or depression flare-ups but I'd never thought of it like that and actually dealing with it like that and going this isn't forever this will go has been so helpful to me and knowing that I didn't know that but I was so obsessed with the media I'd never switch off I'd never be off Twitter I'd never be off the BBC News app again realizing that I need to switch off from time to time and I need to take very clear breaks realizing that I need to have free periods because, you know, if you're on social media, you're going to see news, right? Having periods off social media, having periods away from news, having periods of not thinking about work, having things like the gym, running, PlayStation, anything to distract myself. Also work, which at the time mm. was brilliant, you it know, was a really good distraction, but it was a distraction. Knowing what to do when my mental health starts to flare up was the biggest thing that therapy gave me. And I can't thank jerry enough because she was amazing she was absolutely amazing so you know it was both the good and the bad year because it was the year where it was like i need some help with this my head is spinning but it was also the year i started to understand it all and i now do understand it and i can manage it so that's good
0: i'm happy let's reflect on your mental health journey then christian so a what has it taught you about yourself and b if you could go back in time and talk to the christian who was having night terrors as a child, the Christian who was hiding who he was from his family and friends and being bullied in school or the Christian who had just been made redundant from Radio One's Newsbeat. What would you say to him knowing what you do now?
1: I'd answer the first question with what's it taught me about myself. It's taught me that I am someone who struggles with their mental health. I know that sounds a really stupid thing, but as I say, go back to 2015, 2016, I would have said no to that question. And It taught me that no this is something I have to manage and there shouldn't be a stigma about that because I'm also asthmatic so I have to manage my asthma but it's not like I get worried declaring to people that I have an inhaler you know I manage my asthma in the sense that I take tablets and if I get a flare up I take my inhaler and I avoid letting the dog climb on me that's how I manage my asthma so I also have to manage my mental health and that's what it taught me and I'm great I'm in a good place I'm in a really good place at the moment but I have to manage it I have to keep track of it fine Mm. In terms of what I'd say to any of those versions of Christian, try and relax, it's going to be fine.
0: (laughs) Easier said than done in it though, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah,
1: I am always one of life's worriers. I always will be. There are many things I'm incredibly grateful to my amazing father and mother for passing on to me. I love them with all my heart. They are my world. But I'm not so glad that they passed on their abilities to be very hard on themselves and to worry. They both do it. They both know they do it. If they're listening to this, which I suspect they will, there won't be any news to them. It's a Hugh Gill family trait. We're quite hard on ourselves and we we worry. We're worriers. So I'd just say to the just try not to worry. Try not to worry about things that might happen and just worry about dealing with what's in front of you. It's easier said than done. And if you're listening to a podcast about mental health, it's something that a lot of people will be able to listen to this um, resonate with, I'm sure. But yeah, it's just a simple case of it. I try and just... Calm, relax. That's my big mantra. Just relax. It'll all be fine. And eventually, whether it was losing the job at Radio 1, whether it was coming out as gay, it has all been fine. So we have to go along in the faith that whatever happens next, it will also be fine. It'll be fine, Freddie. you will be fine. We just have to remember that. It'll be fine. That's the mantra of this episode. I think it'll be fine. Just chill. That's what I'd say to that question.
0: Can you channel that worry positively, being organised, not being late for stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah. being organised is a big one. Being kind to myself. So, again, and this is a freelance adjustment period, not booking yourself on an early shift the day after you've done a late shift. Because I know that part of my mental health gets triggered if I'm overtired. If I don't go and have a nap after this early shift and I'm talking to you, I'll not be a very nice person, Freddie. Go and look after yourself, Christian. Go and have a nap. If it all gets too much take some time off work and go for a walk. I channel it positively in that, yes, being organized and learning to look after myself and realizing I don't need to do everything all of the time. It's fine to stop and have a bath. It's time to stop and go on the PlayStation for an hour. It's time to stop and watch some crap telly. Yes, you can manifest it positively. An organization is one of those, but I think the best way to manifest it positively is remembering to be kind to yourself personally.
0: We've come to our final topic of conversation, Christian, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and a chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate?
1: Yes, it's good. As I say, I'm in, I'm in a good place at the moment. I am on medication for a little low period I had once I left. As I say, It's not been that long since I left the BBC and I had a low period My GP is fantastic and I'm very lucky because that's not always been the case in my life. But my GP knows me and knows my mental health. And we sort of more as a precaution put me on some antidepressants to sort of just see me over a very tricky period in my life. And that had been the first time I'd been on medication for a good year. I'd had a a while off it. So my mental health is good. I am happy. I am not too anxious. I'm enjoying life. So, so long as I'm enjoying it, then yeah, my mental health's in a good place. I'm just managing it and I'm hitting the right, right. Um, you know, I'm doing the right stuff. And by the, our plan is for me to come off the meds in the next three months or so, which by spring will leave me back off the meds again and will have sort of got me over the dip of mm. coming out of losing the job where I did have a depression dip, it's sort of in the summer, I did have a dip, but I'm much,
0: much better now. Excellent, mate. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health?
1: I can't remember. So I'm going to go with the year, but we discussed it in this podcast, but it was 2017, however old I would have been then. And I was born in 1991. So if your listeners can be bothered, you can do the maths, but I can't. I said I wasn't. I said I wasn't good at maths. I'm, I'm being consistent. So yes, 2017 we'll go
0: with. Brill. Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And on the one hand, did it feel like something big, massive and a big burden or weight of a lift off your shoulders? Or on the other, did it feel like something very easy, insignificant and normal to do? I think that's the first question you've asked me. I can't
1: remember. I can't remember the first time I had a mental health chat, but... Let me therefore use what politicians do. Let me ask, answer a question I could answer rather than the one you asked me. <laughs> I can't remember the first one, but I can remember one that felt really significant. Okay. One significant was obviously the first one I had with my therapist. Mm-hmm. I think my boyfriend came to realize over time it wasn't one big question. I think it was just we both realized that we both look after our mental health. I think that was, that was one conversation. I think I just sort of, as I say, o- organically we got to realize But the one I would say that felt the most significant was the one with my old boss at Newsbeat. She was called Debbie Ramsey. Debbie won't listen to this. But if she did, she won't mind me saying this. Debbie was scary, right? Debbie ran a newsroom with a... Proper. And she was amazing. I love Debbie Ramsey. She was fantastic to me. Wonderful woman. But especially before 10 o'clock in the morning, anyone will tell you, that Debbie could be intimidating before 10 o'clock in the morning. After 10 o'clock, much better. She'd have coffee by then, you know, all fine. But Debbie could be a bit intimidating. I had still was internally stigmatising mental health, right? So having to sit down with someone who I was scared of sometimes, and I'd only just started working for her and say, my therapist said, you should tell work. And I was terrified because I was like, that I'll lose opportunity, blah, blah, blah. And Debbie was amazing. And again, I'm sure there are listeners listening to this podcast who've not had good experiences with telling work about mental health. Debbie was phenomenal. She just said, anytime you need to go to therapy, fine. Anytime in the BBC Employee Assistance Programme, you need extra help and I need to sign something, come to me. Anytime you just can't do it, last minute, tell me. Anytime you need a chat, tell me. Because I probably think the second time I've nearly got emotional saying it, I don't think she probably realised how important that conversation was to me because... That was the first time I'd taken it out my comfort zone, out of friends, mm. family therapist. Okay. In the big That's wide scary world, step,
0: mate. I'm yeah. stepping
1: out of it. And she said everything you'd want to hear and backed me to the moon. And back. I was so grateful to her for that. So grateful. So thanks Debbie. She won't listen to this. So she'll be, she Big watched, up Debbie. If you're listening, she watches too much Hollyoaks to be <laughs> an hour listening to a podcast about me. But yeah, she's amazing. We really like Debbie.
0: Amazing, mate. That's a great story. I love that. You've, answered already the next three questions I had which is about triggers self-care tools and a mantra in life that defines your mental health you definitely answered that so my next question is what is the best book or as I call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it can be mental health or self-help related but it doesn't exclusively have to be
1: it's by an author called Matthew Todd who's a gay man and it's called Straight Jacket and not only did it help me understand why LGBT people are more likely to suffer with mental health because that's fact. It also made me understand when I spoke earlier about certain family members maybe struggling with it, it also made me sympathise and understand why because it goes back into a bit of a history of LGBT people becoming more accepted, going from the mm. 60s onwards sort of thing. It was it might have even been further back now. It's been a while since I've read it. So not only did it help me with my mental health, because it's got huge sections devoted to LGBT mental health. And that's when that became, and it's through reading that book, I think that that became a real passion of mine. But it also helped me understand a lot more why I've been through what I have and why probably my parents went through and family members went through what they went through when initially they took them a while to get used to.
0: So it contextualised the past for you to understand the present? What a nice way of putting it! You're good at this, aren't
1: you? (laughs) It's not your first radio. No, it's not your first radio. Yes. What a nice way of putting it. You should do a podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We get into very meta territory now. Saying that. Nice, very nicely done. I've got one more question, mate, and it's a very broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable? feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if, most importantly, they want to do it?
1: I could answer this in a thousand ways. Answer the way you want to, mate. We we Two sub-points. One is we do need to keep talking because still, men are getting better, but there's still so much work to do in men talking about mental health. We know that. The second thing is I wish, and this is probably more broad than just men, actually, we need better access to therapy. We need Mm. better access to mental health support. I still hear far too often people going to gps and doctors with mental health and getting no help and i have found this by the way because i now for various reasons can't see the therapist i spoke about earlier in the pod i have found sometimes on two separate parts of my life trying to get access to therapy has brought on bouts of anxiety and depression there's an irony there Yes. yes it has and there was one point where i was like going through these hoops is making me ill and it's stopped this this is too much stress it's
0: a perpetual cycle
1: yeah yeah uh, lack of access to mental health professionals in this country is a huge issue and mm-hmm. it is costing lives i have lost count of the number of times that i've had people i know people i've interviewed friends even me try and get access to help and just found it
0: impossible it's the elephant in the room isn't it yeah Yeah. until we have a good telling people speak up and speak out and reach in and reach out but what happens after that yeah
1: yeah until we have more mental health professionals in this country and have them more widely accessible people will be taking their own lives in great numbers it's a pandemic all of itself it really is
0: and on that slightly less cheery note but is that the end that is we have come to the end mate. god i can't end on okay give something else mate before we finish (laughs) Uh, oh god
1: yeah you're trying to end it on a positive and i've just depressed everyone uh (laughs) I, i very grateful to you for giving me. i've never done this before i don't talk too much about my personal life i'm much more comfortable asking the questions and presenting things than being on the other side of it and i was slightly anxious about it but i appreciate the importance of talking up about mental health so the fact that you give people a platform to do that is a very good thing so thank you freddie it's inc- it's lovely of you to invite me on this i'm very grateful
0: it's been an absolute pleasure christian thank you so much for coming on the just checking in podcast and talking to me mate my pleasure that's a better ending than death isn't it let's do that good Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Christian for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him. I'll put a link to where you can follow Christian on social media, or commission him for work in the show notes. I'll sign us off by saying, remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media, tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to our Patreon, that's at www.patreon.com/venthelpuk. You can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe, which is at linktr.ee/venthelpuk, or you can buy a vent T-shirt. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to bet.